Late night snacking, Chuck, is a bit of a problem. When we finish eating, we may rest, we may go to bed, but our body doesn't necessarily get to rest. Our gut microbes don't get to rest. In fact, that's when they grab their lunch pail, put on their hard hat, and they go to work. If you eat at 10 p.m., then around 2 a.m., you are elevating your triglyceride level, and there is inflammation that is occurring around that, and that inflammation will persist from 2 a.m. until the following morning. And then you wake up and you eat, and your body never gets a break. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 47 of season four, number 242 overall. You know, that late night meal may sound like a good idea, it may taste good, but it probably won't do your body any good. And why is that? Well, Dr. Will Bolsowitz is here with that answer for us today. He is a renowned gastroenterologist and the author of the best-selling book, Fiber Fueled. He's here for his monthly check-in on the exam room live. And when we asked this question about late night eating that one of the exam roomies had sent in to the doctor's mailbag, it really sparked a conversation that went a lot deeper into science than I was expecting. And I guess that's the good part about having a gut health expert on the show. It's that they can really give this thorough assessment of the situation. In this case, the midnight snack or that late night dinner and what happens to you when you go to bed with a full belly. Plus today, Dr. Bolsowitz also breaking a little bit of news and dropping a new nugget during our conversation. He's got some brand new research hot off the press that you are going to want to hear, all pertaining to the topic at hand. Plus, he'll be exploring one of my favorite questions that has ever been sent into the mailbag. And that question, are you more likely to gain weight if you eat the exact same food at midnight as opposed to midday? That's a good one. That's a really good question you're going to want to hear the answer for. Also in the mailbag today, a question like, is it better to eat three full meals a day or is it better to graze throughout the day? And do you need healthy fats in the diet in order to absorb fat-soluble vitamins? And can fiber supplements provide big benefits if you're eating a low-fiber, high-fat diet such as keto? All of those will be answered and a lot more when we open up the doctor's mailbag with Dr. Bolsowitz in just a minute. And I also want to invite you to stick around because after that, I will have new details on even more breaking nutrition news. It has been a busy week. There is a brand new study on fruit, fruit that is filled with natural sugar and the risk of diabetes. Oh, you're going to love this one. But first, it's time to take a look at meal timing and whether that midnight snack that you love so much can love you back. 
Let's go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag, get everything rocking and rolling, and welcome Dr. Bolsowitz to the show. How are you today, my friend? Hello, Chuck. I'm excited to be here. The first question right out of the mailbag is one from Catherine. She wants to know how and why does the body digest food differently when we eat late at night? Yeah, very interesting. So our we are completely programmed with a biorhythm. A biorhythm that is anchored to the rise and fall of the sun. And that's because we evolved with the rise and fall of the sun. And so did the microbes that live inside of our colon. And so it's quite fascinating to consider this, that you could eat literally the exact same food and at different times during the day. And because we have this rhythm, which we call the circadian rhythm, you'll have different metabolic responses. So you could take the exact same food, eat it for breakfast, and you won't spike your blood sugar nearly as much as if you did to eat the exact same food much later in the day. So late night snacking, Chuck, is a bit of a problem because part of the issue is that when we finish eating, we may rest, we may go to bed, but our body doesn't necessarily get to rest. Our gut microbes don't get to rest. In fact, that's when they grab their lunch pail, put on their hard hat, and they go to work. And they help us to process and digest our food. And there's very interesting research, Chuck, that actually I believe was literally published yesterday. This is research that I'm friends with the authors. Uh, one of the authors, her name is Sarah Burry. She is at King's College London. And in this research study, what they showed, Chuck, again, literally published yesterday, I believe, or it's going to be published tomorrow, and I probably am not supposed to be talking about it. But either way, <laughs> uh, in this study, what they showed is they were looking at a concept called dietary inflammation. And effectively, what they were asking was, what happens after a meal? And does food potentially activate our immune system and create inflammation? And when they looked at this, Chuck, it was quite interesting because what they found is that food actually acutely increases our triglyceride level. And our triglyceride level is very closely tied to inflammation. And that's what they showed in this study. And so if you look at what happens after a meal, about four hours after your meal, your triglyceride level is substantially elevated. And it remains elevated for at least eight hours, if not 12 hours. What I'm saying is that if you eat at 10 p.m., then around 2 a.m., you are elevating your triglyceride level. And there is inflammation that is occurring around that. And that inflammation will persist from 2 a.m. until the following morning. And then you wake up and you eat and your body never gets a break. And so the point from my perspective is that we need to give our body a break. We need to give our gut microbes some rest. And so this is why I advocate for an early dinner or as early as you can. I mean, to me, that's 7, 8, 7 p.m. or before. And then make a hard rule. Once dinner is over, no food, no late night snacking. If you want to have something, have water or an herbal non-caffeinated tea. That's what I would recommend.
There you go. And look at you breaking news on the show today. That's pretty interesting, man. Uh, I like that study. I'm going to try to get my hands on it and uh, and dive a little bit deeper on there. That That is fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, and it was, Chuck, real quick, I'm sorry, but they also looked at, it's a really cool study because it comes from the PREDICT studies and they had more than a thousand people. This is a very large study by these standards. Most of these studies have like 20 people. Hmm. So they had more than a thousand people and they also looked at blood sugar. Because many people assume, like you have these people out there right now who are wearing these continuous blood glucose monitors and assuming, oh, if I spike my blood sugar, that must mean that I'm also spiking inflammation. And what was interesting, Chuck, is that the blood sugar is not as relevant. It's the triglycerides. It's the triglycerides, which of course come from animal products, but also can come from ultra processed foods like sugars and and sugars and white flowers, things like that. And were the results here consistent no matter what it was the person was eating, whether it be a donut or an apple? Well, so so the, the, the choices that you make in terms of your diet are going to have differential effects on your triglyceride levels. And so uh, a donut is going to spike your triglyceride level because it's basically sugar. That's going to spike your triglyceride level far more, far more than the apple is. And so, so it's not... Um, it's not comparing apples to apples to say that eating an apple and a donut is the same thing. And so it's, I think that the, the point of the study uh, is, is one that when we elevate our triglyceride levels after meals, we actually are causing inflammation in the body. And number two, that there is this period of time that is delayed after the meal where the triglyceride level comes up and it increases inflammation with it. And this is why snacking on pretzels at 10 p.m., it may seem like a benign thing, but those are that's white flour that elevates your triglyceride levels, and you're doing that at 10 p.m., and that inflammation is going to carry into the next morning, and that's problematic. Well, how about that? Uh, to that end, a follow-up from uh, Catherine. She also wanted to know, is it true that you're more likely to gain weight even if you eat the exact same thing at midnight as opposed to noon? There are some animal model studies that would suggest that this is true. I have not seen a very good calorie controlled study in humans to make it clear that this is in fact true, that if you sustain or maintain the exact same calories, but eat at different times, that you will have weight loss or weight gain as a result of those timings. But I do, I do believe, Chuck, that timing is relevant. That's not to dismiss this concept. Um, I do believe that timing is very relevant. And we do know that people who are shift workers, God bless them. Many times those are our public servants. We're talking about nurses, firefighters, police officers. Our shift workers are more at risk for metabolic is issues, including weight gain and type 2 diabetes and even coronary artery disease. And that brings us to a follow-up question from NextGen. Put this in at 12.06 in the chat. Wanted to know what advice you do have for shift workers. Is there anything they can do to kind of mitigate these risks? Um, it's So it's a little bit tough, but what we would prefer to do if we could is that even though you are working at night, you really sort of, you don't want to be eating your food in the middle of the night and then eating a snack, and then laying down and going to bed first thing in, in, in the morning when you get home from work. So what you prefer to do is have a nice large meal before you start your shift. And the hope is that that meal will mostly sustain you through the night. 
so that you can try to maintain some semblance of a norm of a normal biorhythm. The other thing that's very important, Chuck, whether it is being a shift worker or whether it is jet lag and flying across the world, because now we're starting to get on planes again. I just got on my first plane in over a year recently. Uh, whether it's jet lag or it's being a shift worker, an important concept is tying your circadian rhythm to the rise and fall of the sun. And so you want to try to establish yourself. One of the things you can do to anchor this is to, in the morning, is to go and get exposed to bright light. And in the evening, to withdraw yourself from bright light, which when I talk about withdrawing yourself from bright light, I'm not actually referring to my concerns about people being exposed to the sun. The sun's going to go down. I'm worried about the people who are up all night on Twitter and watching television in their bed because the blue light is actually affecting your melatonin release, which affects your circadian rhythm. And so that's the other thing that we can do is try to anchor our circadian rhythm to these timings. Well, man, you, you hop on Twitter at night, man. There's a good chance you're not going to sleep for a bunch of reasons. You can get on there and just get all fired up thumbing through. Uh, here's <laughs> <That's> a, so <laughs> true. <laughs> I don't know if we have the answer to this one yet uh, from Jory at uh, 1209. Uh, what about teens who seem to be hungry all the time and they want to eat right before bed? So is age a factor here? I'm not sure that the data's in yet or not, but weigh in on that. Yeah, well, I, you know, people, uh, teens are growing, right? I mean, most of the time teens are in the process of growing into a full, full-sized adults. And so, you know, I think about my son and my son goes through periods of time where he doesn't eat as much. He's four years old, by the way. Um, my daughter is seven, very similar to, uh, they go through periods of time where they don't eat as much. And then they go through periods of time where they're like devouring everything that I can put in front of them. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh my gosh, did you just grow? Like, I think you just grew a little bit. So, I do think that there's this element of like when we're in a growth phase that naturally you are going to have an increased appetite surge that comes with that. Um, but when it comes to late night snacking with our teens in a perfect world, I mean, it's hard to control teens. I was impossible to control. But in a, in a perfect world, I mean, these rules still apply. It's still human physiology. They don't get an exception because they're a teenager and they want to have Doritos at 10 o'clock at night. So to the best of our ability, we would prefer to them to not be doing that. Question from uh, our good friend, Allison. She wants to know, do you recommend uh, three meals versus grazing throughout the day? What's, what's the take there? Well, I, you know, I, I think that there's a little bit of an intuitive nature to this. So some people are very rigid about these things. They say, oh, absolutely not. You're not allowed to have snacks in between meals. And, you know, the problem is, like, for example, sometimes at 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm really hungry. And if I don't eat, then I'm going to have sort of a toxic level of hunger by the time lunchtime comes and I'm going to devour everything. And I'm also going to make poor dietary choices when that's the case. And so like for me, a piece of fruit at 11 o'clock in the morning takes care of that for me. I feel really well. I'm not as hungry at lunchtime and I still get to eat. Do I think that we need to like rigidly just do three meals exclusively? I don't, I don't feel like that's absolutely required. Um, but you know, generally speaking, I, I don't feel like there are advantages to grazing either. And so based upon what I know, I, I, I sort of believe that three meals is more the way we should be leaning, but I don't, I don't know that there's really strong data to back that one way or the other. 
Question from Teresa at twelve fifteen. I'll just go ahead and feel this. Uh, she wants to know what days are we live? Uh, well, Teresa, this show is live right now, so thanks for joining us uh, every Wednesday, noon Eastern, nine a.m. Pacific. Join us here for the exam room live. Uh, okay, question from Jana twelve oh eight. Will a fiber supplement make up for a low fiber diet that's high in fat? Interesting one. Um, a fiber supplement. In this setting, a low fiber diet that is high in fat, which I'm, I am assuming is something along the spectrum of a ketogenic diet, would it help? Would it be a step in the right direction? Probably. But to call it make up for a low fiber diet that is high in fat, I can't say that it would. In fact, I would argue that when you reduce fiber intake and when you increase dietary fat, um, that actually that is a combination that we have multiple studies at this point to indicate is not beneficial to our gut microbes. And so again, can you sort of blunt the negativity a little bit? Can you make it less bad by using a fiber supplement? Sure. I think that that may be a thing, but is it going to compensate completely to the point where there's no negative effect from going high fat, low fiber? Uh, absolutely not. You you need fiber from dietary sources. That should be the principal source of your dietary fiber. And it's not a matter of counting grams and doing supplements. It's a matter of getting the plants in variety and abundance. Let's uh, keep chewing the fat here. Take a question from CFY at 12.09. Do we need healthy fat in our diet like nuts and seeds and maybe some oil to effectively absorb fat-soluble vitamins? Well, there are there are fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, K, and E, and the absorption of these fat soluble vitamins is improved in the setting of dietary fat. Do we need healthy fat in our diet in order to get these vitamins? Um, I I would not sit here and say that there are people who because well, globally speaking, when people are on a low fat diet. I don't see that there are these huge vitamin deficiencies in A, D, K, and E as a result of being on a low-fat diet. In fact, most of the time, if properly done, a low-fat diet is high in fruits, vegetables, whole grain, seeds, nuts, and legumes, and the person is overall nourishing their body and healthier, and as a result, less likely to suffer from vitamin deficiencies. So I don't feel this need where we need to like fear these particular vitamins and be hyper fixated to the point of seeking out additional fat. That being said, do I believe that we can be healthy and consume nuts? Yes, there is no question about that. The data is very clear. Is it possible to consume some oil? Well, it depends on how much oil we're talking about. It depends on what oil we are talking about. Do we need oil in our diet? Should we be seeking oil? I haven't seen any evidence that indicates to me that we should be seeking oil, that we should be increasing oil in our diet. If anything, the evidence to me suggests that we should be reducing the amount of oil in our diet. But that being said, many people do include oil in their diet. And if you do, it should be consumed in moderation with a preference towards extra virgin olive oil. Here's a question from Catalina at 1218. Wants to know, can you have a healthy microbiome without eating fermented foods regularly? You definitely can have a healthy microbiome without eating fermented foods regularly. There's no, there's no data that says that fermented foods are a requirement for a healthy gut microbiome. In fact, you know, looking at fermented foods and whether or not they are beneficial to our gut microbiome, I welcome 
additional research. I look forward to additional research. But most experts who study the microbiome are in agreement on this topic, that we believe that fermented foods are beneficial to our microbiome, that they are living foods, that they contain living microbes. And as a result of that, that, that there is a benefit, there is an interaction that exists between our gut microbes and the microbes in our food. But Chuck, you've probably heard me talk about this before. Fermented foods are not the only living foods. All plants, all plants are living foods. If you eat an apple, an apple has a hundred million microbes that are a part of the microbiome of that apple. And those microbes, just like we have our microbes that help us to grow to be big, strong, thriving humans, that apple has microbes that are there from the time of flower all the, all the way up to fruit. And those microbes are helping that apple to grow and become strong and become the juiciest, most luscious apple you've ever come across. And we do believe that those microbes potentially also are interacting with our personal gut microbiome. So this is one of the arguments that exists in, in favor of the consumption of not just fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, nuts, and legumes, but in favor of the consumption of some raw foods. I don't think you have to be exclusively raw, but some raw foods because they have those microbes. Maybe you have a patient or two that has this problem. Interesting conversation right now in the chat room about somebody who is always hungry. No matter what they eat, it seems like they just are a bottomless pit. Matter of fact, we have somebody in there right now who says that they just ate three potatoes and they're still hungry. So what should somebody in that position do? What do you think even could be going on? Well, I think step step number one, anytime we're asking questions of this variety, step number one is what are we treating here, right? So we can make assumptions. We can make assumptions and just say, oh, well, it's the food that you're eating. Three potatoes, how could that fill someone up? There's very, there's very little fiber in those potatoes, right? Um, but the issue is that that is an assumption and we need to know exactly what we're treating first before we start doing things like that. When I think about people that have a voracious appetite, I start thinking about, is there an endocrine reason? Meaning, is there a hormonal reason? Could be the thyroid, could be something related to blood sugar control. Um, those are some of the reasons that I would, I would potentially look at. I think it's a reasonable place to start by discussing it with your primary care doctor, getting some basic blood work that includes your thyroid level and a blood sugar level. And, um, and then beyond that, uh, we, we do know, Chuck, there are, at this point, multiple studies that are, that are showing us that dietary fiber activates our satiety hormones. In fact, one of the major studies was by Kevin Hall, who is an NIH metabolism researcher, and he compared a whole food plant-based diet to an animal-based ketogenic diet. And what he found during this study where people were consuming food and they were very closely monitored and they were allowed to eat as much as they wanted to eat, what he found is that people eating the whole food plant-based diet lost more fat than the animal-based ketogenic diet because they were activating their satiety hormones with the amount of fiber in their diet. And as a result of activating those satiety hormones, which by the way, is a very important concept because it's... It's your body telling you when you've had enough. By doing that, they were consuming 600 calories less per day and achieving the same level of satisfaction, meaning that they ate until they were full. They didn't want more. They're like, I've had enough. I'm feeling pretty good. 
and yet 600 calories less per day because of the fiber in their diet. Whoa, 600 calories. That's what, 4,200 calories a week? That is an insane amount. And then you think about adding that up over the course of the year. Holy moly. Uh, Wow, that's a big swing. Um, All right, interesting question here uh, that uh, has to do with keeping things moving. You wrote fiber-fueled. Fiber is just, I mean, that is what keeps you moving. But we have a question from a roomie who wants to know whether magnesium can also help to keep things moving? And if so, what time of day should they be looking at taking a magnesium supplement? So obviously, uh, this is something that you'll want to discuss with your with your healthcare provider. Um, not just, hey, I saw Dr. B on the exam room live. And now I'm now I'm trying this. But um, actually, magnesium is fantastic for constipation. In fact, many times I will combine it with dietary fiber and potentially a fiber supplement in order to achieve the optimal effect, which is to keep things moving through. We want our bowel movements to be soft, but formed, kind of like a sausage or you know, a snake, if you will. Uh, not to be too graphic, it's hard to describe a healthy bowel movement without <laughs> being a little bit weird about things, but we want a soft, but formed bowel movement. And fiber helps to give the shape. In many cases, fiber will soften it to a certain degree. But in many cases, we need something more to soften it additionally. And what magnesium does, magnesium supplements, is that they pull water into the colon. And that water allows us to keep our stool nice and soft. So and that that can be beneficial to people who are um, who who are a little bit constipated. Magnesium choices. I would do magnesium oxide, magnesium sulfate or magnesium citrate. Those are the three main types of magnesium that are good for constipation. And in terms of the timing of it, you know, there's no real hard rule about this. You could do morning if you wanted to, but I typically tell my patients to take it in the evening before bedtime. And part of the reason for that is that magnesium, by the way, is also very good for sleep. All right, here we go. Doctor's choice here. Do you want the easy question, the intermediate question, or do you want the graduate course level question? I want the graduate course level question. All right, then we're going to Vanessa at 1220. Does a high fiber diet help the gut heal after having colitis? All right, Uh, so colitis. First of all, I'm going to assume that um, what we're referring to is ulcerative colitis from Vanessa, um, because there are different forms of colitis. Colitis is a very generic word, uh, which means inflammation of the colon. Colitis could be an infection. Colitis could be ischemic colitis, which she means says, that you don't uh, get enough. She says C. diff colitis. Oh, okay. C. diff colitis. Very cool. All right. High fiber diet helped the gut to heal after having C. diff colitis. So here's the key point that you need to know, Vanessa, when it comes to C. diff colitis. C. diff is the consequence of an unhealthy gut microbiome that is incapable of suppressing the bacteria C. diff. Many of us, I'm sure myself, many of us have C. diff already living inside of us as a part of our microbiome, and it does nothing to hurt us because our good gut microbes run the show and our good gut microbes squash the C. diff and keep it under control. All right. So the problem is when we take antibiotics 
we are wiping out our microbes, including the good ones. And this is why we are vulnerable in this setting of taking antibiotics to the C. diff rising up. Because most of the time, the antibiotics that we take wipe out the good guys, but do not affect the C. diff. So the C. diff starts to multiply and grow and it rises up and it becomes a more profound part of our gut microbiome, which can cause colitis. So the key is to support the good guys. How do we support the good guys? Exactly as you're proposing, Vanessa, a high fiber diet. And that high fiber diet doesn't start after the antibiotics. The high fiber diet starts before and during the antibiotics. That is the best way to support your gut microbes while you are taking antibiotics and even afterwards. Graduate level question asked and answered. I love that, Professor. Uh, Anastasia checking in says that she just started reading your book, Fiber Fueled, and she is absolutely loving it. So Anastasia, thank you also for being here today. That's pretty cool. That's got to be really cool, you know, when somebody tells you how much they appreciate something that you put so much time and effort and energy into. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's amazing to, you know, these messages that I get from people. I mean, it just, as a doctor... Um, I, I feel like it's my place to use my education and my skills to try to help people. And that was really the mission that I had when I wrote the book. And, you know, you just never, you never know, Chuck, what's going to happen. Um, you know, I put the book out there. I launched it in the middle of the pandemic. It could have sold no copies. Like it could have been very weak. Um, and the fact that people are connecting with it and that it's motivating people to eat more plants in diversity, um, you know, I mean, it's it's amazing to me. And it means so much when people reach out with comments like that. Let's take a couple of more questions here before we close up the mailbag for this week. Uh, interesting one from an exam room. He wants to know, does the acidity of animal products weaken gut bacteria? Well, it's not so much the acidity, because what's interesting is that acidity within the colon, believe it or not, is actually a good thing. Acidity comes from short chain fatty acids. So short chain fatty acids. They, they create acidity within the microbiome. And that acidity, again, short chain fatty acids come from fiber consumption. That acidity actually alters the balance of microbes. There are certain microbes that thrive in that environment with more short chain fatty acids. Those are the good guys. And there are certain microbes that recede and grow weaker and are incapable of surviving in that environment. And those are typically the inflammatory bad guys like E. coli or Klebsiella, for example. So it's not so much the acidity. The issue is really more so the fat. We have evidence to indicate that saturated fat has harmful consequences within the gut microbiome. We have consistently seen a pattern where the increase of saturated fat is, it is ultimately leading to the growth of unhealthy microbes. I'll give you a few quick examples, Chuck. There was a study that was done in 2014 by Lawrence David, published in Nature, where people ate a completely animal product-based diet for five days. They also, by the way, ate five days of a completely plant-based diet. So we had both points. And on this animal product-based diet, in just five days, they saw the emergence of Biophila wadsworthia, which is bacteria connected to inflammatory bowel disease, Allostypes putridenis, which is a bacteria that's been connected to colorectal cancer and to abscesses and bacterioides species, which are bacteria that are generally con considered to be inflammatory. 
That's on five days of an animal product-based diet. On the flip side, on the plant-based diet, what you saw is the emergence of healthy microbes that produce short-chain fatty acids, which we've been talking about that are so healthy and good for us. So it's not so much the acidity that's the problem. It's more so that the saturated fat is problematic. All right. Here's a really fascinating question from Tim. Uh, wants to know, is getting a wide variety of plants, so if if he's going for variety, does having something like 15 bean soup count as 15 different plants or just one because it's in the same meal? I mean, I, so I count that as 15 different plants. When you make chili, throw as many beans in there as possible. When you make soup, throw as many varieties of beans in there as possible. When it comes to this concept of diversity of plants, I really sincerely believe that we should make this one of the central philosophies of our diet so that every single time we're at the supermarket, every single time we're at the salad bar, every single time we're in the kitchen, every single time we're putting food onto our plate, it's on our mind. Diversity of plants. You hear my voice. Dr. B pops on your shoulder. Diversity of plants. Diversity of plants. Because when you do this, you are feeding your good gut microbes. Now, do we want to only eat beans and beans exclusively? No, we don't want to only eat beans. We also want to get diversity within within whole grains, diversity within vegetables, diversity within fruit, diversity within nuts and seeds. And that's how we create a nice, balanced, biodiverse diet to lead to a biodiverse gut microbiome. Let's end with this. This is right in your wheelhouse. And I'm sure that when this news broke a couple of weeks ago, you were all over it. Got a question here from Pete. Wants to know why are we now being told to get colorectal cancer screenings at 45 years old as opposed to 50? What is going on there? Um, what is going on there has been a series of research studies that have indicated to us that colon cancer is emerging and on the rise in people before age 50. So, and it's been quite disturbing, Chuck. The first studies came out, I believe in 2017, around this time in 2017, like around June of 2017. And basically what they showed us is that if you were born in 1990, your risk is twice as high for getting colon cancer compared to someone born in 1950. If you were born in 1990, your risk of getting rectal cancer is four times as high as someone born in 1950. Since 1995, we have seen colorectal cancer rates in people under age 50 double. They've doubled in literally 25 years in this young population. Now we can talk about why that would be, but the point from our perspective is to create awareness and consciousness that colon cancer is not just an old person's disease. Yes, the risk does go up with age, but now the risk is shifting towards younger populations. And so it requires vigilance. We are adjusting our screening protocols to 45 instead of 50, but it also requires us that if you are before age 45, if you have a family history of colorectal cancer, you should definitely discuss it with your doctor and see if you're eligible for screening. If you see blood in your stool, you have a change in bowel habits, you're losing weight, you have fatigue, lightheadedness, you get anemic and we're not sure why, you have abdominal pain that you can't explain. These are all reasons to consider getting checked because the earlier that we start, 
the better we will be at keeping you safe. And Chuck, our colon cancer screening uh, program, which has been around since the 1990s, has been extremely effective. All right. So to put this into perspective, we are seeing they've actually did a recent pro projection. It was published on April 7th of this year in JAMA. They did a recent projection of what they expect to be the main cancers in terms of risk, in terms of death, all the way out to 2040. So for the next 20 years. And what we're seeing is that colorectal cancer is on the decline, generally speaking, that there are other cancers that are emerging and becoming more problematic. Why? Because we're being attentive to it with our screening program. But at the exact same time, in the exact same research article published in JAMA, they said, so yeah, we are seeing the decline of colorectal cancer, but in people between 20 and age 49, by 2030, nine years from now, we expect colorectal cancer to be the number one cause of cancer-related death in people aged 20 to 49. So it is emerging in a younger population. So the point being, we need to be vigilant. We need to get checked as early as possible, as long as, as early as they will allow us. And if you have symptoms that prompt you or warrant getting a colonoscopy, I would strongly encourage you to do it. And this is the practice that I live by for my own self and with my own family members. What's the youngest you've ever heard of somebody having colon cancer? Outside of having a genetic, so there are genetic conditions that can that can put people in a position where they could develop colon cancer in their 20s. I um, had a patient once who was 27 years old, young African-American man, 27 years old, nicest guy. And he was having rectal bleeding and he thought it was just hemorrhoids. And, you know, being tw a 27 year old male, he wasn't eager to come to see me to get a colonoscopy. And um, ultimately we did do a colonoscopy and I diagnosed him with colorectal cancer. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Mm. Mm. Uh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, question from Betsy here. This is one that I'm sure that a lot of people who are hearing this right now or watching us live are wondering as well. I want you to know if you have been eating a plant-based diet for years, do you still recommend getting a colonoscopy? 110% without any hesitation or reservation at all. I, so Betsy, I had a patient once who um, was a yoga instructor, a vegan for literally decades. And she sat there in my clinic and she said to me, I'm not gonna get colon cancer. I don't need a colonoscopy. And I was early in my career and I let this happen. And she died of colon cancer and it broke my heart. And I will not allow that to happen in my clinic anymore. So <clears throat> this is just an anecdote the data are there as well. If we go, if we go to the Adventist two study and we take a look at the rates of colorectal cancer among vegans and vegetarians in the, in the Adventist population, what we see is there is a decrease in colorectal cancer, but it is not a 100% decrease. It's about a 22% decrease. So what would that mean? If the entire country was vegan right now, instead of 150,000 cases of colorectal cancer, we would have 125,000 
you know, 120,000. Um, that's, that's the order that we would be talking about. There would still be a lot of colorectal cancer. And by the way, when I give those numbers, those numbers are also assuming that people are actually getting screened. So our most powerful tool to prevent colorectal cancer and what has completely bent the curve to reduce colon colorectal cancer, like by 2040, right now, colorectal cancer is the number two cause of cancer death in America. By 2040, it is dropping on that list. And that's because of our colon colorectal cancer screening program. So to me, it's a no brainer. And I personally, and in my own family members, I believe in getting it done as early as possible. Uh, I think that the the idea of the prep for the colonoscopy is a real deterrent for a lot of people. Uh, Eddie asked this question very early on in the show, and I wanted to circle back to it, asked it at 12, uh, 13. Uh, do you have any advice on getting a colonoscopy, uh, even if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet? Is there anything that somebody would be doing differently or is the procedure exactly the same? Well, the, the, so the good news is if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you, you are basically on the optimal diet for a healthy gut microbiome going into anything that you have to do with relation to the colonoscopy. The colonoscopy is a very transient event. What I mean by that is that you are going to flush out your colon. And do I want you to flush out your colon on a routine basis? Absolutely not. That's a horrible idea. But is flushing out your colon on one particular occasion and then literally a couple of hours jumping right back onto your healthy whole food plant-based diet, is that problematic? I don't really see that as problematic. If anything, to me, it's very clear the benefits outweigh the risks. So now, the one thing that you have to be conscious of is that if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, the insoluble fiber, the roughage that is in your diet can get trapped in your colon and affect the quality of the prep. And speaking as a gastroenterologist, the quality of the prep is, is the most important part for me to be able to do a good exam. If it's a bad prep, I just can't see parts of the colon. So what we need to do is in the days leading up to this prep, we need to actually go on a low fiber low residue diet. And that is a temporary thing that you would do for typically about five days, go on a low fiber, low residue diet. And then when you're done, boom, right back on your whole food plant-based diet and get those microbes thriving again. Let's put a bow on this conversation here. Uh, we, you said that we could talk about the why the rates of colorectal cancer were rising among the yum, younger demographic. Would I be correct in assuming that diet is likely the number one factor there? Yeah, the, so there is some speculation as to exactly why this is, Chuck. So let me walk through a couple of the layers of evidence here that we're that we're looking at, um, you know, as gastroenterologists and as scientists. So first of all, is this genetic? Like to have colon cancer rates double in a population since 1995, is this genetic? No, clearly not, because if this were a genetic shift it takes a lot longer than 25 years for us to see that take effect. So clearly this is environmental. Now, what is it about the environment that is creating this issue where it's like jumped up since 1995? The problem is that there are many different factors. Diet is probably the number one. 
because when it comes to colorectal cancer, there's the intersection of three things that we consider to be critically important to the pathogenesis, the development of colorectal cancer. Diet, microbiome, and inflammation. And guess what? Diet relates to microbiome. Diet relates to inflammation. We just talked about it when I broke, you know, this research study that I probably wasn't supposed to talk about today, where I talked about how diet can affect triglyceride levels, which leads to inflammation in the body. All right. So the point being that we do think that dietary changes is a part of the story. It's entirely possible that there are parts. So we, we know that red meat, we know that processed meats are like the number one signal from a dietary perspective that pops out but it may be other parts of our diet. It may be the processed foods that we're consuming. It may be uh, preservatives, additives, things of that variety that are in our food supply in these highly processed, ultra-processed foods. But let's also bear in mind, we have an obesity epidemic. We have a diabetes epidemic. Are these things tied to diet? Yes, of course they are, but there's other elements too. There's a study, Chuck, that came out that tied the, the amount of time that you spend watching television to your risk of developing colorectal cancer before age 50, right? I mean, that's just part of an unhealthy lifestyle. So let's not just isolate it to diet. Let's talk about the importance of sleep, of exercise, of spending time outdoors, of spending time with people that you love, of dealing with your stress. These are all important factors as well. Man, I feel like we could be talking about this for uh, so much longer because there are so many layers to this particular story, but uh, we got to leave it right here. But the good news is, uh, Dr. B, you're going to be back here again next month, so we will continue the conversation then. How does that sound, sir? That sounds like a fantastic plan to me. I love it. Now, in the meantime, here's what I need for you to do, my exam roomies. I need for you to head over to theplantfedgut.com and check out Dr. B's uh, free plant-fed seven-day challenge, okay? So what you're going to want to go on there. You're going to want to take that seven-day challenge. What can happen to a person's gut in the span of just one week? Chuck, one of the studies that we talked about, the one where we compared plant-based to animal-based, what they showed is that literally in five days, you are remodeling your gut. So in just seven days, we're even better. I love that. I love that, how much things can change in just such a short amount of time. And, you know, we live in we live in an era, man, where it's like we want it and we want it now. So the shorter the, the time that it takes to get to something good, the better off it's going to be. And everybody can do something for five days. You're giving them two, two bonus with the week-long thing. So I think that that's fantastic. Anybody can give one week and see dramatic results. I love that so much. And oh, by the way, uh, you heard Anastasia in the chat room uh, bragging about uh, Fiber Fueled, how much she's enjoying that. So uh, I highly recommend if you haven't picked up your copy yet, head over to Amazon or your local book retailer, pick up a copy for yourself and get to raising your health IQ, my friend. Uh, Dr. Bolsowitz, you are the man, my friend. You are just a walking, talking encyclopedia of all things gut health. So thank you so very much for being here and helping to raise our health IQ. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you to everyone who came to hang out with us at the lunchtime today. And I appreciate y'all. The Exam Room Live is your best opportunity to ask experts like Dr. Bolsowitz your questions. 
The experts are always happy to help to raise your health IQ. So go ahead, mark your calendar, set a friendly reminder for every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. Join us for the exam room live. You know, Dr. Bolsowitz is kind enough to join us every month and Dr. Neil Barnard is also a frequent guest on the show and so many others, and we would love to have you join us as well. So that is Wednesdays, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. Hang out with us for the Exam Room Live. Let's head over now to the Exam Room News Desk. At the top of the show, I mentioned a brand new study all about fruit and diabetes. And fruit obviously contains natural sugar. And sugar has been thought to be the enemy, the driving cause of diabetes for so long. But there is brand new research today that can be added to the growing mountain of evidence that shows that fruit, even though it has that natural sugar in it, may not be all that bad for diabetes. And in this case, perhaps even prevent it altogether. A study of more than 7,500 people in Australia finds that those who ate two or more servings of fruit every day tended to have better overall blood sugar control and a 36% lower chance of developing diabetes. Now, the researchers who conducted this study say that they examined the diets of the participants for five years before arriving at their conclusion. And their results can be found in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And despite what a lot of people think, fruits such as apples or oranges or bananas actually can have a low glycemic index. Plus, it's a health powerhouse because it has a high level of fiber and vitamins and minerals and even phytochemicals that have been shown to help prevent diabetes. You can find a link to the full study right now in the episode notes. How would you like to take part in one of the biggest nutrition conferences of the entire year? I mean, really raise your health IQ. Take it to a level you never thought possible. Do that. Join us July 15th through the 17th for the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. More than two dozen of the world's leading researchers and doctors and dietitians and health advocates all will come together to present the latest fact and evidence-based nutrition science. And there are 22 credits available for doctors and nurses and dietitians and other healthcare professionals who need them. But you don't, in fact, have to work in the medical world to join us. You just need to have a keen interest in your own health. And right now, there is a special discount available for exam room listeners. Use promo code examroom to save $50. That's exam room, all one word, lowercase, to save $50 off the cost of registration. And then... You lock in three days of the latest science on nutrition and lifestyle, longevity and health. And we're completely online again this year, which means that you can raise that health IQ of yours right from the comfort of your own home. 
So head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM to register. That's pcrm.org slash ICNM and use the promo code examroom to save $50 and join us July 15th through the 17th. And lastly today, we need your help. We are asking you, I am asking you to join us to help save a life. Help us prevent so many of the diseases that we talk about on this show. Help us do that by getting this information to those who need it the most. Those who think that their future, their health future is bleak. Offer them some hope by subscribing to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And when you do that, please also leave a five-star rating. Because believe it or not, every new subscription and five-star rating helps us climb a little bit higher in the podcast rankings. And with every spot that we climb, the easier it becomes for somebody who needs this information the most to find it. And we want to make sure that they can find it and learn about this and become inspired and take charge of their own health. Let's do that right now by subscribing to the exam room and leaving a five-star rating. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to my friend, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>